Insight and Awareness Spiritual Explorer. Soul Intuitive, Emotional and Spiritual Mentor and Award-Winning Author, Lorraine Nylon. Welcome, Explorers, and thank you for being part of the adventure. Today we have Michael Brozovsky, the founder of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation, an Australian charity in Vietnam. And Blue Dragon deals with human trafficking, slavery and homelessness. Now, that is not an easy arena to be in, Michael. I would agree with that. Uh, And it's not what I expected to ever be in. Um, It's happened along the way. So how did you get into it? I moved to Vietnam in 2002. Um, I'd I'd been a teacher in Sydney. uh, uh, I'd been to Vietnam on some holidays, and I just loved the country. So I moved here without without much of a plan, and I was teaching English in a university here in Hanoi. And along the way, you started to meet homeless kids, street kids. They were doing jobs like shining shoes or um, selling selling trinkets on the street. And because I was an English teacher, I just got talking to them. And when they when they knew that I taught English, they wanted me to teach them some English. And so it really just started like that, quite quite naturally and spontaneously. The, the work with human trafficking and slavery came a bit later when some of those kids who we knew were trafficked and we went looking for them uh, and, and, and brought them home. Um, so it was all, uh, like I say, very spontaneous, very, very un, a very unplanned journey. Right. So do you go and get the children, you rescue them from where they've been, you know, I, I had a look at your website and some of the stories are quite horrific and, you, and mm. you know, for someone that's never lived it, I couldn't imagine what it's like for the to be taken from your family and then, you know, in a different country, even some of them are, you know, taken from Vietnam into China. I mean, and, and so do that's you right. set up rescue squads and h- how does it work? Yeah, well, we we deal with the two issues quite in, in some ways, quite separately, there's a lot of overlap. But with homelessness, we're working in the city here in, in Hanoi. Um, and we send, we have staff who go out at nighttime looking for the kids. So they go to, to parks where homeless kids might, might be, to internet cafes, abandoned building sites, wherever young homeless people gather. Now, these are kids who've come to the city from the countryside. They're not from the city. Generally, they've come here looking for a job or just sort of, you know, that, that thinking, everything's easier in the city, right? Everyone's rich. If I go there, I'll make it. And kids, they, they hop on a bus. They might run away from home. They might have their parents' permission to leave home. And, and you know, the parents might, might be just absolutely broke. And they realize that one of their kids going to the city is a good option. And they, they come to the city. And, you know, within minutes realize, oh, okay, this is really bad. Um, you know, we've met kids who've been robbed within minutes of getting off the bus. Others might find a job or um, and, and end up being exploited. They don't get paid. Uh, some some become victims of sexual abuse. They, they get tricked into going off with some bloke. So, so we have those people from Blue Dragon going out every day looking for those kids going and and I one thing I didn't mention was going to the bus stations as well 
trying to find the kids before things go wrong for them. So, so and what, what age group are you? What age group are we talking here? Well, they they tend to be the kids who come down from the mountains tend to be thirteen and up. Uh, but we we also do deal with kids who are a lot younger than that, who might have come here with a parent or a relative, who who is then begging on the street or selling something on the street. And and sometimes there are there are these. I, I hesitate a bit to call them gangs because you then think of you know people with tattoos and 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 weapons and so on and they're not like that but but kind of gangs that they come in from the countryside uh, they're very often women and and they'll have convinced some of their neighbours or some local people send your children with me and we'll make money together and I'll send I'll send money back to you uh, and so they might have little little toddlers with them. Uh, because they, of course, attract sympathy, and and so so sometimes you'll have really really little children selling chewing gum or uh, or begging on the street, and they're under the control of of these pimps basically. And 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 so we do have some young, very young children who who we support, mostly young teenagers. And, and when it comes to the human trafficking to other countries, so to China, to Laos, Myanmar, Cambodia, they can be children, but, but they can also be women in their 20s, 30s, 40s um, who, who are trafficked and sold. They can be men as well. Boys and men um, are, are also being trafficked to, to neighbouring countries. And, and do they, what, do they mainly trick them into it or how, does it, how do they get them from you know, A to B? So sometimes we think that human trafficking is like an abduction scenario, and it's usually not in Vietnam. Um, it's it's a deception. So a trafficker builds trust with their with their target, with their victim, usually offering a job. Sometimes it's a it's a kind of a relationship uh, deception. So someone pretending to be a boyfriend, for example. But most commonly, the the people who are being tricked are just in need of a job. They, they're broke. Someone in their family is sick. They've lost their job because their company closed. And, and the trafficker sees that vulnerability and says to them, well, you know, I know someone who's got a restaurant or, you know, my brother has a factory and really needs to hire people. It's always something very believable. Uh, and and they, may, they may do things like they may lend the victim some money or give them some money, you know, to really build that trust so that at the point where the victim goes with the trafficker, they seem to be going willingly. Uh, you know, they may cross into China through a legitimate checkpoint saying, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way to a job. Uh, or, or, you know, this is my friend. I'm traveling with my friend. They, they have no reason to suspect that they're, that they're being trafficked. Uh, and, of course, once they're across that border, suddenly everything changes. They'll be handed over to someone else who will take hold of them violently um, and, and use threats, uh, use actual violence, um, make threats against their family back in Vietnam, and they'll then be sold. Uh, and, and then they have no option. They cannot leave. They, they have lost control of their personal situation. Yeah. I find it mind-boggling that 
now is the time that we have the most slavery in the world than we've ever had. When I first heard that, I absolutely, st- I still struggle to, to go, how, how can this be? It's one of the odd things about our world that we're at a point where so many of us are more comfortable than we've ever been, while so many are in worse situations than they've ever been. Um, and, you know, when we're in that situation of comfort, and, you know, let's be honest, everyone listening uh, to, to this podcast is in a comfortable situation. If you have the, the luxury in life that you can be, you can take some time to listen to a couple of people talking, then, you know, you're, you're further ahead in life than, than billions have ever been, which is great, right? That's not a criticism. We want people to be comfortable. We want people to to have a good life where where they can study where they can learn where they can explore but somehow at the same time i mean the, the figures at the moment estimate that 50 million people around our world are in slavery and that makes no sense like you mm-hmm. say because we should be able to stop that we should be able to to deal with that but somehow the resources aren't always put in the right place and, and how do you, how do you go dealing with that every day? Because that that has to have a toll on you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I studied at the University of New South Wales before I came to uh, to Vietnam. I I did a masters of education, um, and and I had this wonderful uh, teacher, Catherine Hookman, who who told me a story about September eleventh, two thousand and one, in the US. Where, where people were being, you know, in, in the aftermath of those terrible, terrible attacks, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, were, of course, were seeing a, an influx of, of people needing help. And they found broadly that there were two categories of people. There were those who, who had really terrible, almost untreatable uh, psychological trauma and generally, they were people who had been, they had witnessed what happened and they hadn't been able to help. They were maybe watching from a distance from another building. They were seeing terrible things and they were totally helpless. And, and then there were those who generally could recover, were a lot more resilient, were able to deal with what had happened. And they were people who had had some tiny element of control. They had run in and grabbed someone and dragged them to safety uh, or, or even just been able to call for help or coordinate some help or, or offer a drink to someone who was fleeing from the devastation. And, and the conclusion from that was that if, you, if you're able to help, if you're able to do something, then you have more resilience. Your, your ability to cope is much greater than if you're standing watching a tragedy unfold and you just can't do anything. And, and that's the situation that I'm in. And I have at times found that I've been unable to help. And those have been the most dark periods of, of my life, of knowing that something terrible was happening and just feeling like I, there's nothing I can do here. How do I cope, though? I, I have to be in a position where, yes, those terrible things are happening, but I am doing all I can. And, and that doesn't make it okay. 
you know, it doesn't mean you, you go home whistling at the end of the day, uh, you know, carefree, but it means I can cope. Yeah, that's good. Actually, that makes sense to me too. It is, it is, it's empowering to feel, even if it is give somebody a drink of water because they're thirsty, it's, it is empowering to the person that's giving as well. Definitely. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are so many cliches around uh, when you give, you actually receive, but it's all true. Uh, it's being being selfless is, is great, but you do get something back. It does build you up spiritually, mentally to, uh, to, to be helping others. You shouldn't go into it for that, you, you know, anyone getting into charitable work or, or helping others because of what they will receive in return, they're probably not going to actually reap those benefits. Um, but if you're being genuinely caring for others, then it, it is also good for you. There's no question. Do, do you feel like you were born to do what you're doing? Somehow I do. Uh, even, even before I moved to Vietnam, you know, my friends used to joke that I seemed destined to, to move to Vietnam. So, look, I, I was born in Sydney and my parents were factory workers. When I was about 12, we left the city and moved to a tiny farm, you know, 130 acres of, of rock and mountain south of Inverell in northern New South Wales. I went to a little central school uh, for some years and then I moved to Inverell High. Now, I was, I was the most foreign person at Inverell High School because of my, my surname. My dad's a German immigrant. People thought that I was a foreigner. I, don't even, I didn't even speak German, right? Then one day in this very white school, uh, seven Vietnamese refugee kids turned up, kind of out of nowhere. Um, somehow they had, you know, they had left Vietnam on a boat. They'd been in a Malaysian refugee camp. Uh, somehow they ended up in Inverell uh, at, at this school. And I was fascinated by their stories, uh, learning that they had, you know, they'd faced pirates. They'd, uh, they'd lived in these camps uh, you know, on, a, on an island of Malaysia. You know, this story just blew me away. And, and so I started teaching some English to them, helping them uh, to settle into the school. And, and, you know, from that moment, it's, it, it was just clear that I was going to end up in Vietnam one day. Everything kind of just worked towards me being where I am. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's like the, the starting point to something that you have no idea where that's going to take you. So That's so right. When the kids, that's right. Yeah. So, well, I, actually, and when we look at our lives, we see that there's these little points along the way that are they're heading us in a direction. Which is beautiful. Yeah, you know, I've I've heard an, another theory, uh, and and I can't I can't even tell you where this theory comes from. It's not my theory, but I've heard that when you really think back to when you were very young, to your very first dreams, your the first things that excited you, um, actually they're the things that ultimately in the long term you should do. That, that it's like life takes us away from those, those real passions that we have. We think we need to, to pursue something else. We, we think we have to build something else. And actually, in the end, you look back and it's what, what you loved as a child that, that really makes you happy. Yeah, definitely. So when, so when you get the children and, and so you re-educate them, 
is it is that the the pro so so give our listeners a, an idea of the process you 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 you're rescuing kids you you you're getting the homeless off off the streets as well and and then what's your plan what do you do then well it's very much case by case so and and in a way what we do is very very human rather than planned and you know we we have this program and and you can fit into our program or not with every single person we meet we're asking well what is it that that you want for your life so with homeless kids sometimes we meet them and at first they'll say look no thank you i'm happy being homeless and and they might say that because they're afraid that we're going to force them to do something uh they they just they might not be expecting that anyone is going to do something nice so you know for some days or weeks or months we might be going out meeting this this girl or boy on the street and having having an occasional meal with them uh give them a little bit of cash so that so that they're not desperate uh give them some clothes you know and and then eventually there might be a day when they say uh, okay look i i really need your help uh, others the day that we meet them they'll be saying get me out of here you know please <laughs> yeah i'm ready <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. There, there are those, that, you know, it happens. So then, okay, well, what does this child need? Straight away, they need emergency shelter. They need somewhere safe for right now. They need a meal. But now, why are you on the street? What's happened here? Uh, we So we want to get kids home. That's most of the time, that's the best thing for kids, to be back with their family. But maybe their family needs some support. and And we can do almost anything that you can imagine. We've built houses for families. You know, in the last year, we built about 100 houses for families in rural areas. They cost a few thousand dollars each, basically. Um, it might be that someone in the family is sick. Maybe we need to get them to a hospital uh, and, and treat their illness. Uh, maybe we need the parents to help the parents start a little business, which could be a farm, could be a little roadside stall uh, you know it so really practical things getting the getting the kids back into school and by far most of the time when you offer that practical assistance then people are fine after a little while they they can stand on their own they they don't need someone helping them anymore uh, and and then others might you know it might take years they might need psychological counseling they might need a lawyer to to help them with a legal problem that, that they're having that happens as well. So it's very much case by case. When we've rescued people from situations of slavery in the neighboring countries, our, our, our offering of support is just as diverse, but there are, there's a bit more certainty about what they'll need. They'll need psychological counseling. They'll, they'll need legal assistance. We, and we have lawyers and psychologists as part of Blue Dragon. And, and then the material support that they need, that's when, you know, it's up to the individual. Um, some some need help to go back to school. We, we've rescued people who were in university at the time that they were trafficked. Uh, we've, and, and they just need help to get back to university. Um, others never even started school. And so, you know, maybe they need to get to school or, or, or maybe they just want to help, want, want us to help them start a business. So, so that's what I mean when I say it's very human. Yeah, so, like Lorraine, if, 
if, if, if I needed to help you with something, what am I going to do? Well, it depends on what you need and what you want. So there's always this process of negotiation, of, and it takes building trust, getting to know people. It's imperfect. It changes from time to time. But, but it means that we don't have to ever exclude anybody. We, we never have to say, look, we, we can't do that for you. Uh, because, you know, Blue Dragon doesn't offer that service. Um, there's always a way to help. Yeah, meet the person where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, I love that. That's brilliant. So have you noticed a big change in what's occurring or is it just consistently the same or is, you know, what, what are you noticing that's yeah. actually happening? That's, that's a really, really big question. One thing about, first of all, about Vietnam and, and secondly about human trafficking is that they constantly change, constantly. Oh. The, the underlying principles of our work, of how we meet kids where they're at, the, the respect that we show young people uh, and, and those we're supporting, you know, those underlying principles, they, they stay the same no matter what. But the actual cir circumstances and situations that we're dealing with my goodness, that they evolve at the most rapid rate that that you could imagine. So when we started with human trafficking work uh, of rescuing people from neighboring countries, we were rescuing Vietnamese girls from brothels in China. That was it. Then the Chinese authorities had a really big crackdown on those illegal brothels. Fantastic. So that kind of stopped. But now girls were being trafficked, girls and women were being trafficked to be sold as brides. And then so for, for about 10 years, that was our work. We were rescuing Vietnamese girls and women from bride trafficking. Then COVID came along and uh, getting into China became a lot more difficult. Uh, and, and so the traffickers had to find other ways to make money. And, and so where we're at right now, and by the way, come back and speak to me in a year, and this will probably be totally different, but the, the traffickers started opening what we call scam centers in Cambodia. Basically, what they do is they traffic people uh, and, and make them become slaves, and their job as a slave is getting online and scamming people in other parts of the world. So in these scam centers, they might have, let's say, 100, 200 people. There'll be some Vietnamese, uh, some Malaysians, some Thais, and their job will be to scam people back in Malaysia or Vietnam or Thailand. And by the way, there are Vietnamese-speaking people in Australia, so they're targets as well. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, you know, There are Thai-speaking people in the US who are being scammed by Thai slaves. And so these started in Cambodia. And wow, it turned out to be super profitable. Uh, and these, these centers kind of expanded. They would include a brothel in their, in their center. There's now talk that some of these also involve animal trafficking, um, potentially organ trafficking, which is very rare, but we're, we're now hearing about it. And these centers, they were so profitable that now they're moving to other locations as well, especially to northern Myanmar, uh, which is basically lawless. 
and and so in Cambodia, where they were able to work kind of with free reign, in Myanmar, it's at another level. And and I'm always very careful to not dramatize things, to not make things sound worse than they are. But I can tell you honestly that in northern Myanmar, if one of their slaves is misbehaving, uh, is not working well, it tries to escape, they'll just kill them. If if they think there's no more money to be made from this person, just kill them. To no value. Uh, It is horrific. Uh, And and even recently we've been rescuing people from Laos. Now, Laos is a tiny little country. Most, Most Australians, most people listening to this podcast would know very, very little about Laos. It's a landlocked country. Um, very undeveloped, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, people are being trafficked there for these scam centres. Um, they're, they're operating in um, what we call SEZs, special economic zones, that are generally run by Chinese businessmen. Um, they've like they've they'll rent uh, on a one hundred year lease, a thousand hectares, and set up businesses there. So, you know, it's difficult for Lao law enforcement. To, to operate there as they normally would. And and Chinese law enforcement also can't operate there. So it's kind of this legal grey zone and gangsters are taking advantage of that. We never imagined we'd be rescuing people from Laos. So that's the pace of change. Yeah. Um, you know, so many people will ask me, what are you, what are you going to be doing in five years? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I know we'll be rescuing people. We'll be helping people recover. But but even to look at next year, you know, this is work that we're taking a few months at a time. Right. Yeah. Actually, it, it's it is mind boggling. It actually is, it's a it's a lot to wrap your head around. So so what do you think that humanity needs to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? Because you're you're looking at the pits of of you know. It's funny, I refer to as humanity as people remembering that their soul's in a physical body and operating from that level of themselves. And I look at mankind. I wrote about it a long time ago, so the language has changed, you know, diversely changed. But I look at mankind as forgetting their souls and operating from just that desire to do whatever with no consequences or, you know, hoping to have no consequences. So... You're looking at mankind at its lowest ebb. So, what what do we need to what do we need to acknowledge and understand for us to evolve? We're all the same at the end. At least we, we start out the same. You know, on on the day that we're born, we're not a trafficker. We're not a victim. Mm. Uh, we're not a homeless street kid. Uh, you know, selling things. We 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 all start out the same. Um, now, along the way, things. Things go wrong or go right. You know, we, we did a study some time ago on what makes the profile of a, of a victim of human trafficking in Vietnam, and we were able to identify certain characteristics. Typical, this is the typical victim. Then we looked at, okay, what's the typical trafficker? And you know what? They were basically the same profile. It was people in the same circumstances but with a, just a very different response to their circumstances. One person was saying, okay, I'm going to exploit others to survive. And, and another was falling victim as they tried to survive. 
but basically they're the same person. Yeah. And we, in our world, you know, we judge each other. We, we, we very often see the worst in each other, which is when I, you know, when I'm, when I step out of this world that I'm in, when I travel, when I, when I meet people who know nothing about human trafficking, it's so interesting to see how even in a world where there's so much good, uh, we're so drawn to seeing the bad. What do we need? What does humanity need? We, we need to see the good and to, to actively find the good in, in each other. And, and I think only then can, can we really have a good world. It's, it's what one of, one of my sayings here in, in Vietnam as well is that, is, and, and this is especially when we're working with street kids, I say that we get out of the kids exactly what we expect. We've had kids come in and, and someone has said to me, oh, this kid's a real little gangster. <laughs> and you know what? If you think this kid's a real little gangster, that's what they are. That's what they'll give you. If, if you see this child and say, hey, this is a wonderful individual, you know, with, with a lovely character, then that's what they'll give you. Kids give you what they expect. And I think we all do. Mm. So we, we need to start out seeing, actually, we're all the same. I'm not better than anyone. We, now, people do stupid things. People do evil things. And we need to deal with that. I can't, I can't, I don't have a good explanation for that about how people can do some things that they do. But if we can take a step back and, and see that our starting point is all the same yeah, and our end know. point is as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then yeah. we can accept each other a lot more. Yeah. No, I, it, yeah, it's something to think about. It is because it, we do all start the same way. And we are all going to end the same way. Well, you know, yeah, how we get there in between is what we're – and they're all decisions that we make. And I think too, like our own sense of compassion, it's – it's. I, I was talking to uh, an ex-undercover detective that was working in the drug trade and and that person actually said, it's funny how, you know, people go out Friday night and they're partying these drugs you know she and this person was talking mainly about cocaine and then she, the disconnect between your fun friday night and how that got there and i was like we do that to everything that we don't understand or we find too big a problem we just disconnect from it and then we think it's happening to those people over there so it's not my problem but it does have this flow on effect mm. to the world that we live in that we, we are quite yeah. removed from it. And that's that's a difficult one in some ways. I mean, okay, cocaine is clearly illegal, but, but even in things that we buy legally, you know, our, our mobile telephone, might there might be an element of slavery in that supply chain. Now, I can't, like, I can't not have a phone because of that. And when I'm going to go and buy a phone, I can't go and, you know, first check out their entire supply chain for myself, you know, travel the world and, and, and ask everyone if they're, if they're doing this job freely. Like there's a, there's a point where we're not responsible, but we're still connected to it. You know, we don't have control over some aspects of it. Some we do, you know, we can actually get online and make sure that the company making our, our telephone is a good company and that 
they're doing all the right thing. Doesn't guarantee anything, but like there's that little bit of control or influence. Maybe it's influence rather than control. But in the end, if there is slavery in that supply chain, I can't like I can't beat myself up about that. Once I've done my my part, you know, our world is so messy and 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 so complex. Um, and I think it always has been, but but it's getting it seems to be getting more and more complex as we're more and more interconnected. And and in and in some way there we, we actually lose our ability to control or to influence a lot of our own lives because there are so many external influences there. Um, so what does that all mean? You know, it means living consciously, um, mindfully, knowing that maybe I'm just out partying on a, on a Friday night and this is a lot of fun. And, and we should have fun. We, we should enjoy our lives. But we should also be conscious that around us in, in this complex world, there are people suffering. Yeah. We shouldn't be disconnected and, and, and from our, and, and some of our decisions can contribute to that even though we're not realising that. You know, like yeah. some of our decisions can be contributing to it even though, you know, it's the same as someone watching porn or all those kind of things. You know, they're contributing to something, but someone's paying a price for that, a big price. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we have to we have to stand back and say, well, what can I influence? And yeah. and then we have a responsibility to influence that. You know, if you're buying a phone brand that clearly has children doing their their mining for for for, for their precious minerals, you can control that. You can avoid that. Yeah. Um, I accept that there are so many things that that we also can't control, and that's yeah. that's just life. Yeah, we are completely unaware of it. We're completely unaware yeah. of it. Yeah, it's sad. So how do you feel about the world that you live in with what you do see? What's your philosophy on the world that you live in? My philosophy is that, and I've got, I'll, I've got to tell you the sanitised version for the purpose of this podcast, our world is in a terrible mess. Our world is terrible. But it doesn't have to be. That's my philosophy. Um, our world could be so much more wonderful. It'll never be perfect, no matter what happens. It'll never be perfect. But it doesn't. We don't have to suffer the way we do. We bring on so much unnecessarily, often unconsciously. You know, people aren't going around necessarily trying to make things bad for themselves or for each other. But it could be so much better uh, if we treat each other with more respect. If we share more, uh, if 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 we're more conscious of what we're doing, we could all make such better decisions. And that's all of us, me included. Yeah, yeah. Um, me included. So I, yeah. I look at the world through that lens. It is terrible, but it doesn't have yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah. And each person that makes it a little bit better, Michael, makes it a little bit better. So yeah, yeah. There's the suffering. Suffering has a part in life. You know, we learn from suffering, uh, but but so much of the suffering that we see today, I mean, that is not, you can't say there's a silver lining that, that people are, are being cured or that or that people are in slavery. That's not acceptable. That's not okay. Yeah, um, sure. And it doesn't have to happen. Yeah, exactly. So, so what's the greatest thing you learned about yourself 
that I can help others, that, that I can make a difference. That sounds a little bit cheesy, doesn't it? But we think, you know, we, we kind of get stuck in our lives. And, and look, whether, you know, when I was living in Australia, working as a teacher uh, and, and living in an apartment there or, or live, coming to Vietnam, the location doesn't matter, the exact circumstances don't matter. But we get we fall into this trap of thinking we need more. We need to buy more. We need to, to do more. Uh, we need to be more. And, and, and then we're on this cycle where we've, we're very inwardly focused. And, and we think, well, I can't help someone in, in another country or, or, or the, the person next door who, who needs a, a warm meal prepared for them sometimes because they're sick or, or the animal shelter down the street. I don't have time. You know, I, well, I don't have the resources. I remember someone once saying to me, when I'm, when I'm a millionaire, then I'm going to start helping. Um, <laughs> we just, we get into that trap. But we all have power to, to help others. Every single one of us. You know, I, I, I'm, I said earlier that I, I was living in the countryside as a, as a teenager. We were living in, uh, in caravans, or what, what Americans would call trailers. Uh, we didn't have electricity. We, we didn't have, we had to go to a local stream. Uh, and, and fill up a tank, and that was our that was our water supply for, for a couple of years anyway. You know, I'm the least likely person to have founded a, a charity that that is rescuing Vietnamese people from human trafficking. If if I can do that, then then we can all do something, and we shouldn't all go off to another country, by the way, and set up a charity. That's not for everyone. But no. it's, it's in it's in everyone's power to help a little bit. Yeah, and 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 to recognise good causes and know, you know, put your charity money where you know it's it's actually making a difference. You know that that's yeah. that's, that's an important thing. Have you noticed a change since COVID as far as donations and things like that for your for your charity? It's been a rocky ride during COVID. We actually, um, I mean, it was such a terrible time, and and also like such an outpouring of beautiful humanity. During, during COVID, you know, a, a lot of our work came to a, to a standstill or, or changed. Suddenly, you know, we're, we're always thinking, how do we develop? How do we, how do we help people sort of rise up out of this start of business? And all of a sudden, people just needed food. People just needed help to pay the, the electricity bill. And, and so many thousands more people needed that assistance kids we'd helped who were now young adults had maybe had families were f were doing fine and suddenly they needed help and so we turned to the world saying please help there's there's so much need here uh, and 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 there was an, a real outpouring from from people from companies uh, from from foundations and churches just from from everyone and and so we went through a period of being able to really help, and it was a, it was a great time in some ways to to see that humanity. Terrible that it was needed, but, but wonderful. Um, you know, we were delivering food to 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 communities of homeless people that had sprung up uh, temporarily, but they just they needed food. Right now, we were just taking them food. We were delivering boxes of veggies to to families that were locked in and and couldn't couldn't leave their house. Um, 
since COVID, things have been a lot more rocky. In fact, you know, the, there's we, we've come close to a recession and it looks like the world is avoiding a recession. People will be listening to, it, to this in a year's time and will know whether I'm right or wrong. <laughs> but it looks like the world might have avoided the worst of a, of a recession. But people have been nervous coming out of COVID and, and so donations have slowed down. And, you know, there, we will have other times where where more donations come in and there will be times where, where there are less. And, and as an organization where, you know, we have to roll with that. Um, we have to find ways to be helpful to people no matter what the situation is. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a good lesson for us. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and, and all the links will be in the show notes so people will be able to donate if they feel inspired by what you're doing because it's, it it's beautiful to watch. I've, I'll quote my, uh, my dear father. He used to say, there's some people in this world that make you restore your faith in human nature. And and you're definitely doing that. So that's yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I think it's time to play flip the book. So would you like book one, two, or three? Let's go for number three. Number three. So okay, that's um, spirituality, evolution, and awakened consciousness. And you've got one to one hundred and eighty-eight pages to pick from. Oh, okay. Give me yeah. page one hundred and fifty-three, Lorraine. 153. I feel like I'm spinning a wheel here. <laughs> it's a little bit like that, isn't it? All right. So we have, we'll say, three paragraphs to pick from. Uh, paragraph two. Okay. So this comes under the heading, When Did Authenticity Become the Enemy? When we obsess about how our control, performances, and images are received by others, we become preoccupied with the potential judgment or known judgment of others. This causes us to spend a great deal of time and resources orchestrating the illusion that support what we want to convey. This affects what we buy, where, talk about, and how we scale others with pecking orders. However, the fear of what could affect our display, images and illusions, deprives us of peace within. This can ignite constant mind chatter of assessing everything we do by how others may perceive it, which inhibits our ability to authentically interact with others, ourselves, truth and life. Hmm. Your thoughts on that? Oh, wow. I've, I've picked well. <laughs> that's a, that's a terrific. <laughs> and that's packed. There's, we could do a whole other podcast session on, on that paragraph. As a, as a charity, one, one really good thing about my origin story of how I started Blue Dragon is that I had no idea how to start a charity. No idea. Um, and I'm so glad. Uh, and, and even now, we've been running for 20 years now, we still have discussions. In fact, I, it's kind of funny. I had, had one yesterday with the team around our communications and our fundraising work around how we like how we organize and and how we share messages to the world and how we segment you know how we write a, a an email to this type of audience and to that type of audience and and in those conversations we're saying what does everyone else do because like we don't know 
we're really working it out for ourselves. And, and this particular conversation yesterday, like so many of them do, we talked about, well, this is what others do. I don't think that would work for us. That's not us. Really, in the end, our success has been that authenticity and in some ways being shut off from knowing what everyone actually says we should do. The times that we have done our very, very best work are when we've put the least kind of marketing into it, the least uh, proofreading and but but have just gone out there to the world with just what is on our heart saying, hey, we need help. Like I was saying during, during the COVID period, um, I've had, we really then had to rely on, on just our online messaging, our emails, our social media, and, and so on. There was no getting out for meetings, right? There was, there was no hopping on a plane and, and, and traveling to Australia to, to attend an event. Um, we, we just had to write very clearly what was happening, what the need was. And people respond to that authenticity. Unfortunately, that means that you then get some people who, who then become like experts at creating authenticity. And it's mm-hmm. fake. And, and man, yeah. you can tell. People can tell. We have such good radars for authenticity. Every, every great development in Blue Dragon, whether that's how we communicate with the world or, or how we work with young people in crisis, when when we drop all of those um, external um, pushes that we've you know often place on ourselves, thinking we have to do it this way, we we should get that because that's what everyone does. That's that's when we do our best work. Um, you've made me want to read that chapter. That's for sure. So um, I'll I'll email it to you. Yeah, it's thank you. Yeah, and and thank you for holding true to your own authenticity, because. You are there's a shining no, light. There's no better way. Yeah. Look, we, we take a warts and all approach. We're not, we're not perfect as a charity. Yeah. Things go wrong. Um, and we have to learn. But actually, because of that, I think that's our greatest strength. Our greatest strength is, is our vulnerability. Yeah. And, and look, in the, the things that you're dealing with, there's no possible way that can be streamlined. You know, like they they are extremely ta- traumatizing things that people are. You know, your I don't know whether you call them clients or, or you know how you how you label them. You that that's these people are living the worst of the worst. So there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be there's just there's just no way around that. But fronting up, turning up, yeah, and turning up. That's yeah, right. Yeah. You, that's that's that's, that's a really really good point, yeah. um, and and you know because I'm the founder, I'm the guy who gets all the credit. Um, but in fact, the people who are turning up and doing this very very dark work sometimes, they're they're amazing people. Are mostly Vietnamese, um, who could be doing other things, and and I am reminded of that every day. These amazing the psychologists who carry these terrible burdens on their shoulders um the rescue teams who who are facing i mean physical danger in in what they do every day the uh the, the staff who are at our drop-in center you know where the kids are mucking around and making noise and 
they've all chosen a difficult path um, to to help others, and and that is such a wonderful thing. Um, and life doesn't go in a straight line. No. Um, there there are kids we helped, uh, and and one particular story I've spoken about previously. You know, one one young boy who we rescued from from trafficking who then burned his school down in in a village you know and and the loss of this school was a terrible blow to that village and he ended up in prison uh, now he's a, a buddhist monk um and and he he has devoted himself to charity you know and there are there are kids we've helped who've ended up in prison there are kids who would who did so well in and had so much potential and uh and never fulfilled it or you know kids Life doesn't go in a straight line. Um, you can you can do something terrible today, uh, and and tomorrow you can still come good. Yeah. Um, and and I embrace that. Yeah. Uh, it, it's okay that things don't turn out as we would hope. It's it's okay. Yeah. yeah you got to take the yeah. It's a whole. That's reality. That's reality. What you're talking about. Yeah. What Often they turn out better than we hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You're having you're having some wins too, Michael. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. That's right. And you can't have the wins without the losses. You yeah. can't you can't win a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Well, I want to thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for being part of the show. I've enjoyed your conversation. This has really been lovely talking to you, Lorraine. Thank you. Thanks for the great work that you do. 